I think it's important for us as journalists to consistently and breathlessly highlight the homogeneity in this industry, which is easily its biggest downfall. That should be a, a warning sign for everyone in the industry that calls to diversity are falling on deaf ears. That's Max Bayer, a staff writer here at Fierce Life Sciences. Later, we'll hear more from him about last year's highest paid biopharma R&D executives. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by GoodRx and RBC Capital Markets. Today is Friday the 13th, so you can expect that we're going to get a little silly, but we'll save that for later. In the meantime, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Each year here at Fierce, we take a close look at the 10 highest paid biopharma R&D executives. This year, the list doesn't look anything like it has in the past, except for the fact that there aren't any women on the list. But the executive that was the winner last year has fallen all the way to the 10th spot this year. The turnover has been high, and newcomers are ranked even higher. We'll talk more about that later. But first, this week's news. Here's what you need to know. I'm Max Baer. During the past few weeks, there were barely any details from pharma execs regarding potential mergers and acquisitions. It appeared they were tempering their expectations. But Pfizer is stepping forward with an $11.6 billion acquisition of Biohaven's migraine program. The characteristics of this deal fit the criteria that top executives have been describing lately in their first quarter earnings calls. Pfizer estimates that Biohaven's entire migraine franchise can ultimately hit $6 billion in peak sales, led by FDA-approved Nurtech ODT. But the public biotech market is taking a nosedive, and that makes deal-making tantalizing. It potentially drags down a company's value like Biohaven, which by all measures has proven some success. Pfizer is riding the financial swell built by its COVID program, the company execs must be feeling the money burning through their pockets. Biohaven marks Pfizer's fourth recent acquisition. On March 23rd, Novartis won an FDA approval for Plevictal, a therapy to treat prostate cancer. It became their second radioagonal therapy. But six weeks later, production for both stopped. The reason, Novartis said, is potential quality issues. Because the production stopped, the two drugs are no longer being supplied to the U.S. market. Novartis said it expects to resolve the issues and resume some supply in the next six weeks. This gives me a little deja vu. Remember a few years ago when Novartis first launched the CAR T-cell therapy Kibri? Well, it struggled with meeting product specifications required by the FDA. That also led to quite a few delivery failures. And because of that, Hematology oncologists still favor Gilead Sciences' rival CAR-T Yaskara. Radiolagon therapy requires a more complicated manufacturing process than traditional small molecule drugs. It involves making therapeutic radioactive isotopes and coupling them with cancer cell-targeting compounds, or ligands. The final product is put in a lead-sealed container and shipped directly to designated treatment centers. Novartis wouldn't say what exactly went wrong during that process but it did say that there was no sign of any risk to patients for doses it had already delivered. I'm Emily Armstrong. 
Last week, we brought you the news that Biogen's CEO will step down after a troubled few months trying to get Agihelm into the Alzheimer's market. But now, Biogen's partner, ISI, has just finished filing an application for Lecanemab, a drug that they hope will fix some of the mistakes that they made with Agihelm. What's interesting is that ISI is again going for an accelerated approval with the FDA. This pathway came under fire with Agihelm because the companies were still years away from putting up data on how effective the drug is at relieving Alzheimer's symptoms. The last straw for Agihelm was the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services decision to limit coverage only to patients in an approved clinical trial. The ruling also applies to any future monoclonal antibodies for Alzheimer's, which means lecanemab. But ISI thinks it can overcome the stipulation and quickly switch the accelerated approval to a full approval. ISI is currently in the midst of a phase three trial called Clarity, which is expected to read out towards the end of the year. ISI's Ivan Chung said the company already has the FDA's blessing to use that trial as a confirmatory study to switch from accelerated to full approval. Chung says that underpinning the entire process is a desire to gain credibility and trust from the public. We'll see if ISI and Biogen can do that this time around. I'm Connor Hale. Illumina makes DNA sequencers that are used all over the world. Now they want to use their genetics expertise to better understand how diseases work on a fundamental level and then turn those findings into more effective medicines. The company plans to work with the investment firm Deerfield Management, which will help shepherd any drug candidates through preliminary testing. Both hope that by taking a DNA-based approach, they'll be able to avoid the failures and misfires that claim as many as 90% of therapies in early development. At the same time, Illumina will also bring whole genome sequencing to the drug discovery efforts at Johnson & Johnson's Janssen division. The company said this is hopefully the first of many big pharma partnerships. It's been a busy week of personal changes in the biopharma world. Monday, CGen announced their CEO, Clay Seagull, was taking a leave of absence after domestic violence allegations. Chief Medical Officer Roger Danzi will step in while the company conducts an internal investigation. Then, later that day, we reported that Seagull had been arrested. The police report details a night of drinking and an alleged shove that led to his early hours arrest in late April. That wasn't the only personnel controversy this week. On Wednesday, Moderna changed their chief financial officer again. The company previously said that David Meline was retiring from the role, but their new selection, Jorge Gomez, isn't going to work out. Gomez only started on Monday and was out by Tuesday. Why? His former employer said it couldn't file a quarterly report because it was conducting an internal accounting probe. But despite losing his job after just a day, Gomez will be okay. According to an SEC filing, he'll still get paid a $700,000 salary for the year. Talk about a sweet deal. Inovio also announced a CEO change. Joseph Kim is stepping down and Chief Operating Officer Jacqueline Shea is taking the reins. Inovio was unable to bring its COVID-19 vaccine to the market. Now it's focusing on developing a booster under the new leadership. Lastly, diabetes management company Insulet announced a CEO switch. It's currently working to launch a next-generation wearable insulin pump later this year. Shacy Petrovic, Insulet's president and chief executive, will be stepping down on June 1 for personal reasons. She'll be replaced by Jim Hollingshead, president of the sleep and respiratory care business at ResMed. Gilead Sciences reached a settlement on its multi-million dollar fraud case. 
According to Gilead, the defendants exploited $68 million from the company by taking advantage of their early access program for HIV meds. Gilead said the defendants recruited people on the street to sign up for pre-exposure medication, then pocketed reimbursement payments. So here's how the program works. Pharmacies supply the medication for free to low-income people at risk of contracting HIV. Then Gilead reimburses the pharmacy. But when fraudsters own those pharmacies, things get messy. One scheme occurred at a Florida pharmacy owned by the Veselovs who hired drivers to recruit people off the streets to sign up for a prescription. They enlisted family members, friends, and employees to either throw out the drugs or never pick them up. They even forged doctor's signatures for the prescriptions and paid recruits with cash or visa cards. Auto refill on the meds led to a stockpile of hundreds of unclaimed bottles. Gilead hired forensic accountant William B. Waldy for the case. After 800 hours of analyzing the fraudsters' bank accounts, Waldy discovered that the reimbursement money was spent on real estate, private jets, cryptocurrency, and sports cars. He concluded that if the scheme continued, Gilead's funds would be completely depleted. It only took two years for the fraudsters to acquire millions of dollars and thousands of prep bottles. Once Gilead put the pieces together, they filed to freeze the Kingpin's bank accounts, which was granted. The schemers ended up settling with the company for an undisclosed but substantial amount and agreed to never prescribe drugs under the program or any program that gives access to free Gilead medicine again. Gilead has since tightened their advancing access program. The drop in biotech valuations in the past few months may be forcing companies to lay off staff and trim their drug candidates. But according to Big Pharma, biotech's low prices aren't enough. And as a result, there hasn't been much activity in terms of consolidating companies or assets. We'll hear more on this from Fierce's James Waldron and senior editor Eric Saganowski after this short message from our sponsor. As a biopharma professional, you know how difficult marketing your drug has become. Well, GoodRx is here to help. GoodRx is a better way to reach the right audience at the right time. Your brand can connect with millions of qualified patients and providers during the most pivotal moments in their healthcare journey. With over 20 million monthly users, GoodRx provides a trusted platform to help your brand build awareness, offer better access, and remove barriers to adherence. Learn more about the benefits of GoodRx at www.goodrx.com solutions. Hi, James. We're recording on Tuesday, the day that Pfizer broke the recent M&A drought with its Biohaven buyout. Um, before then, the industry had been discussing this lack of M&A activity, and I know you wrote a story about it. So can you tell me about what you learned in your reporting? You know, it's been a quite a grim period for biotechs, and, and we've seen a nosedive in valuations, for example, being reflected in the NASDAQ biotech index, which has dropped about 25% over the past six months. And so that in turn has led to Quite a lot of these smaller companies looking around to see whether they can trim back their headcounts or pare back their pipeline and, and have to make some quite difficult business decisions. Uh, one of the other reasons for that is that IPOs are no longer an easy option for them. So you're starting to hear more biotechs um, look around for potential buyers as, as one way to stay afloat in these quite rough seas. And, and on the surface, that seems like quite rich pickings for big pharma, especially some of those um, big pharma giants who are looking ahead and working out how they can start recouping the losses they're going to make on some of their best-known blockbuster drugs as they head towards the patent cliff. From the point of view of pharma looking for M&A, money is also not an issue. We reported back in February how biopharmas are sitting on about $1.7 trillion to spend on deals this year. And some of the big players like Novartis and Merck 
have been making it pretty clear that they're on the hunt for further acquisitions. In fact, only last month we saw Novartis recruit Wall Street Journal analyst Ronnie Gao as their M&As are. But I suppose what I found interesting was, apart from GSK's recent acquisition of Sierra Oncology in April, up until today when Pfizer's made this re really quite significant $11.6 billion acquisition of Biohaven, we hadn't seen much of that high-value M&A that that we were expecting. So to me, it seems if biotech valuations are down, then pharma companies might want to swoop in and make a deal. So why aren't they? What have you been learning on these conference calls? The first thing that struck me was how cautious some of these execs sounded. Uh, some of these CEOs seemed pretty uh, unimpressed with the current asking prices. And, and one that stood out for me was Roche CEO Severin Schwan, who pointed out that the drop in valuations we've been seeing in recent months was only a course correction back to the kind of levels he'd been seeing in 2019 and 2020. So it didn't sound like there was a huge amount of enthusiasm to, to rush out and start picking up companies now valuations have dropped. Some other interesting CEO comments that stuck out to me was Novartis CEO Vas Narasimhan and Bristol Myers Giovanni Caforio, who both said that the drop in biotech market valuations haven't yet been reflected in sellers' asking prices for these businesses. So they're not necessarily seeing the price tag on biotechs reflecting back this drop in valuations. Now, that's not to say that, that these companies aren't on the lookout for M&A. All of them made positive noises in terms of looking for acquisitions as a way of shoring up their pipelines. And I think one of the, the most positive expressions I heard was from Merck's CFO, Caroline Litchfield, who you know said the company will continue to be appropriately aggressive in augmenting their internal pipeline through business development. But overall, my sense was that these companies, while they're on the lookout for M&A, it doesn't really feel like there's a sense of urgency simply because valuations are dropping. And I suppose from their point of view, the landscape maybe hasn't quite shifted enough to attract them to high value M&A. And from a biotech company's perspective, if your value drops, you don't want to sell after a, a huge drop in value. You want to wait and see whether your drug pipeline can come to fruition and then sell at a higher price. So it makes sense for a biotech company, why they wouldn't want to sell right now. There's the disconnect between pharma and biotech. Yeah, exactly. I think if you listen to what they're looking for, one trend was that they were very keen to be very targeted in their M&A. So you didn't get the sense that they were looking for any opportunistic purchases just because suddenly something had come in their price range. And instead, they only want targets that closely match or complement their existing pipeline. So if you take Novartis, for an example, they said they're limiting their scope to companies in the sub $2 billion bracket. And, and they also made a really interesting point, which was when it comes to picking an acquisition, it can be quite tricky because it's increasingly hard to find companies with really good data that supports novel drugs. Again, I got the sense that, they, that they're very uh, wary of getting carried away and just buying something that looks like it's uh, fallen into their lap. If you look at Roche, another Swiss pharma giant, they said they're only looking for early stage opportunities. And then Sanofi's CEO, Paul Hudson, phrased it quite nicely, where he said he acknowledged that some prices have fallen, but he said, it's never about the size. It's always about the right thing, as he put it. And he said, that's one thing that hasn't changed for the company. Yeah. And we're coming off of a stretch of a lot of major deals in the last few years. Maybe all of the, the low hanging fruit has been gobbled up and it's, it's not as appealing as a, for a deal. So. Do you have any predictions about how M&A is going to play out over the next couple months or a year? A lot of these CEOs were saying that, yes, sellers' prices haven't adjusted, but they do expect that adjustment to take place over the next few months. So 
I got the sense from the calls that while the ideal conditions for M&A have not yet materialized, they are expecting that to change down the line. So if you take, you know, Novartis' CEO, he was saying that they're expecting to see more openness to thinking about partnerships, M&A and business development in the second half of the year. And Merck's CEO, Rob Davis, suggested that if the IPO market continues to be challenging for biotech companies, that might change the landscape over time as those companies start to become more cash constrained. And another interesting point he made actually was that if there is movement, he expects to start seeing it among the smaller biotechs first. So that's probably one area we want to look out for. One more question for us here at Fierce is whether Pfizer's deal with Biohaven this week is actually the start of that trend. I don't know, Eric, if you have any thoughts on whether we expect to see more of these more significant, substantial M&A deals in Pfizer's wake. I don't necessarily think that we'll see more M&A. We knew Pfizer was looking to do deals. They have billions of dollars from their COVID vaccine and drugs. So it, it, it didn't come as much of a surprise to me. Uh, Biohaven made an obvious um, target with their approved drug. It's, it's a really solid profile. It makes sense for Pfizer to pick up that drug, in my opinion. They can do a lot with marketing it. So the one deal today does not necessarily start a trend for me. It might create a little optimism among biotech companies that pharma companies are looking to buy the right company, but I'm not seeing the start of a new trend yet. So if you're saying that it's not too surprising to see Pfizer make this kind of deal, are you expecting any other big farmers to to be following their footsteps? I, I think Novartis and Merck are too. We talked about the Ronnie Gal hire at Novartis. They've they've said they don't want any big deals, so we could see deals even smaller than this Biohaven deal, earlier stage or uh, late stage clinical. Merck is an obvious one to me. They are running up against some patent expirations at the end of this decade, and their CEO has explicitly said they're looking to do deals. So I'm not sure of what size Merck will be looking at, but I wouldn't be surprised to see more headlines from Novartis and Merck in the next couple of months. Another year has passed, and once again, the Fierce Newsroom has ranked the 10 highest-paid R&D leaders. With the pandemic and lots of people shifting roles, the list looks nothing like it has in previous years. Next, senior editor Annalie Armstrong will sit down with Fierce's Max Bayer to unpack some of the dramatic pay shifts. But first, a word from our sponsor. The fast-moving world of biopharma is transforming at a speed never seen before. Stay ahead of the curve with Pathfinders in Biopharma, a podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that takes you inside the changing dynamics of the sector. Hear from biotech CEOs, venture capitalists, and industry-leading investors and gain the perspectives you need to lead today and define tomorrow. Visit www.rbccm.com biopharma or check out the latest episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Each year, Fierce Biotech recaps the highest paid biopharma R&D executives to kind of recount the money that's being spent in R&D. And these people, besides the CEO, are, are arguably the most important executives at pharma companies. In general, they're in charge of all the science, all the research. They have hands in any business development decisions that are going on to bring in new companies or maybe license drugs. Oftentimes, this report stays stagnant each year to year. This year, we had a complete overhaul. It's, I think, one of our most exciting ones since we've 
started doing this report. We're not going to go through all of our top 10, but there's some real standouts that are worth talking about. And we're going to start with number 10, Regeneron's George Yankopoulos. He was our winner last year. He received more than $134 million. And this year he has fallen to just $6.4 million. So Max, what happened? Yeah, it was the kind of fall in payment that really makes your eyes bulge a little bit because not only was the $134 million stunning for last year, but to see it drop so substantially was arguably equally stunning. But ultimately, this really comes down to a particular contract stipulation for George and, and also Regeneron CEO that gets allows them to be paid out in five years worth of equity every five years. So when you see $134 million, you're actually seeing five years worth of equity there. And so that's why in 2021, that fell you know, out of the sky back down to uh, a measly $6.4 million. Yeah. And I don't know of another company that does their pay package this way with such a large sum. Yeah. And if you add in the CEO, we're talking about more than a quarter of a billion dollars in one payout going to two people at the company. And I think that irrespective of a previous agreement that just makes people go, what the heck am I looking at here? Yeah. And just a little background on Regeneron. They're structured a little bit differently than most companies. George, he gets a similar amount of pay to the CEO because they both founded the company. They're they're one of the oldest kind of founder-led biotechs out there. Regeneron has been around for a while, but I think as almost has been the case for a number of pharmas that have been on the scene and, and have been prevalent for many years. COVID has skyrocketed them to more public recognition. And in the case of Regeneron, it's it's been their COVID antibody treatment. Monoclonal antibody treatments have been really pummeled by the Omicron variant. Unfortunately for Regeneron, the FDA ultimately amended the emergency youth authorization granted to the company for that COVID antibody to limit its use nationwide as the Omicron variant spread nationwide because it was found to be ineffective. So that is something that the, the company is reeling from. Regeneron still has uh, a lot of things that it's working with, particularly Dupixent. There is still highs and lows for Regeneron and for George Yankopoulos in 2021. So Max, before we go on to the rest of our list for 2021, there's a notable absence from our list that fell, I believe, just after George Yankopoulos. So who's missing? That would be Novavax's Gregory Glenn. Annalie, we had gotten that company's proxy statement and had seen his compensation fall from, I believe, roughly $25 million in 2020 to less than $1 million. I think we, it was around the $850,000 mark. Almost similar to George, there was a significant drop in equity payment. That had us thinking, why? <laughs> and so we actually had reached out to the company and learned that last year. The company had changed schedule for paying out equity to some of its executives from the fourth quarter, uh, fourth financial quarter of each year to the first quarter, which means that in this latest proxy statement, you don't see an equity payout for Gregory Glenn. So that's why he falls out of this list really from an administrative standpoint. But what it does mean is that we might see him back next year when that that equity is reflected to somebody who was just looking at it. It seemed like, well, what a serious pay cut for, for Mr. Glenn. And we kind of got to get to the bottom of that. So let's jump all the way to number five. We have a new entrant this year, Moderna, which is not surprising to anybody who's been paying attention to pharma. Their president, Stephen Hogue, brought home $7.8 million, which is up a nice 47% from 2020 when he made $5.3 million. 
His appearance on the list also coincides with Moderna making their debut on Fierce Pharma's list of the top pharma companies by 2021 revenue. So there's absolutely no surprise that their executives are now starting to get some revised pay packages. That is, of course, reflective of COVID-19 and how well Moderna has done with SpikeVax. Anyway, I'm just curious, what does the future for, for Hogue look like? What's on his mind and on his plate to fortify the roster of drugs for Moderna beyond just the COVID vaccine? I imagine that this is not the company that he expected to be in. They now have billions of dollars from the COVID vaccine to spend. Moderna is eager to do some M&A to add some more, you know, product capabilities and, and that kind of thing to their pipeline. So he's going to oversee all of that. Obviously, they're continuing with a lot of research into the COVID vaccine. They're looking at new populations. They're working on getting um, spike vax approved in children. They are also working on boosters. But he also has the chance to chart Moderna's post-COVID future here. He gets to oversee a company at such a pivotal point in its history. I think that Moderna exists as this idyllic biotech in a moment when there are no others. Just everyone sort of clamoring to be a replica of this company is really yes. a testament to the success of this COVID vaccine. Just a note on uh, BioNTech, we mentioned they worked with Pfizer on their COVID vaccine. We're unlikely to see their CMO join this list as there are different rules in Europe about pay. So let's jump forward to AbbVie's Michael Severino. His pay package was actually down this year, about 18%, but it was still enough to get him to the number three slot with over $11 million. What makes this interesting is that Severino is actually leaving AbbVie to join flagship pioneering which is the biotech investment firm made famous, of course, by helping to launch Moderna. So he's part of a really interesting exodus of high-profile executives heading for investment firms. And so that brings us to number two in Hal Barron, who was the R&D executive at GlaxoSmithKline, but he himself departed to become the CEO of Jeff Bezos-backed longevity biotech Altos Labs. Barron made uh, $12.5 million in, in 2021. He leaves behind an, an, an R&D program that has really, in a number of different ways, tried to take on the COVID vaccine, but not been as successful as some of the other big pharma counterparts like Pfizer and, and Moderna. And so he's been trying to partner with CureVac, has been one partnership there. But just interesting to see how Barron finally leave that post for a new venture and take on something. Barron was brought in as the person who could turn around GSK's flagging R&D program, if you will. And we can debate whether he's accomplished that or not. But there's no debating, really, that whoever fills his shoes is going to have a tough job. All right. So who is our number one? Do we need okay. some sort of drum roll? Maybe a little drum roll. I don't know if this is getting picked up on the mic, but it's definitely doing the best we can there. The new highest paid R&D chief is Paul uh, Stoffels. He was Johnson & Johnson's chief scientific officer. But as we've mentioned, this is this is a list with a bunch of twists and turns. And the three, two, one on this list are all no longer in the positions that they held that financed their their way to this list. Um, and so he left uh, at the beginning of the year to become the new CEO of Galapagos. Regardless, Stoffel's nabbed more than $15 million last year. It was almost a 9% reduction from the year before. He was chief scientific officer at Johnson & Johnson, which you will remember that Johnson & Johnson uh, also was in the race uh, for a COVID vaccine, developing a one-shot adenovirus vaccine, but issues were raised about a, a potential blood clot risk there. Federal health officials had, had, had originally waved off a serious threat of those blood clots, but 
At this point, just given the adequate supply of the mRNA vaccines, the FDA amended the emergency youth authorization of the shot to recommend that people do not get it whenever they could get a, a similar mRNA vaccination as well. So that's a recent setback for Johnson & Johnson, one that Paul will not have to deal with as he's just left to take over Galapagos. But he has issues of his own at Galapagos, where he'll first be tasked with picking his own CSO. The timing of that decision was relayed to Fierce Biotech as still being determined. But ultimately, the bigger issue at hand for Galapagos is a failure after failure. And so he, he needs to figure out not only how to fortify that pipeline, but also how to maybe bring on some mid to late stage assets so that they don't need to wait for this pipeline to reap benefits years down the line. But Annalie, just as we talk about who is on this list, I think maybe more notable than any of the 10 names we just said is who's not on this list and who hasn't been on this list year after year. And who's that? Women, Max. No women. Any of them ever. <laughs> Never. And, and as a woman, I would really love to see somebody get into one of these positions and just show the world that this is something that women can do as well. We're talking about J&J. I know that they have a lot of talent deep in their bench. I'm thinking of, I believe, Patricia Heaton is one of their vaccine chiefs. She's amazing. You covered there. her too. Yeah. So maybe with some of these open roles, we'll actually see some women get onto our list next year. That would be amazing. I'm putting out the challenge to all the pharmas. Let's bring some women onto our R&D chief list for next year. Yeah. And I think it's important for us as journalists to consistently and breathlessly highlight the homogeneity in this industry, which is easily its biggest downfall, is that consistently in top executive positions and clearly in top R&D executive positions, leadership is dominated by white men here in the United States, in Europe. And I think that should be a, a warning sign for everyone in the industry that calls to diversity of which, Annalie, you and I hear these daily, are falling on deaf ears within their own organizations. And I think that's one of the things that executives and, and pharmas should look at is how do they bolster and diversify their executive candidates and how do they get them to the top quicker? Because we would hope that this list looks different next year and in the years to come. It's 7.45, you don't have coffee yet. You're about to be, you're about to hear infinite investor jargon and it's like lulls you to sleep. Four times a year, companies are required to report their earnings to shareholders and they do that during a quarterly earnings call. This week, everyone in the newsroom is talking about these calls, but not in the way you might think. Usually the only people that want to listen to them besides the investors is us journalists. We get dozens and dozens of companies reporting over about a two to three week period dozens and it can and be dozens. really intense so as journalists we look for the fun in that in the past few weeks alone our fierce journalists have listened to over 1800 minutes of pharma and biotech officers talking about the financial status of their company but after the team has finished writing and publishing their articles there is one thing they can't get out of their heads the hold music that played while they were waiting for a call to start. I don't know if you've seen the show Severance, but it all kind of gave me defiant jazz vibes. I was dancing a little bit. I was getting lit. 
I don't know. I, mean, I usually tune it out, <laughs> to be honest. I had one a, one a day, Monday to Friday. I, I can't say I paid much attention to that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I just mute it until it starts. I do always pre- appreciate like some really intense classical music. That, those intense. are usually my favorites. Yeah. Max, what what is your favorite so far? <laughs> oh my God, this is... Uh, there was one that <laughs> sounded synonymous to the um, Succession intro song, like Kind of like that, like boom, 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 boom. Um, I was like, oh my God, somebody is about to get fired. Uh, and, uh, and, and that, that was good. Um, like some red hot chili peppers would be just fine. Like which um, one? Can't stop. I feel like snow would be a good one. Yeah. Listening one. Cause that's like, you know, kind of smooth. I think you could also honestly do like death metal and just like really shake people. This is why I will never be hired as a, a VP of investor relations is because I'd be throwing around, uh, like six inch nails songs or something. Do you mean nine inch nails or nine inch nails? <laughs> but I found a scoop oh. for you, Max. Yes. <laughs> you know, when you hear a song on the radio that you yeah. like. And you can remember even just one lyric of it, then usually you can find out who the yeah. artist is. I reached out to just about every pharma and biotech communications officer oh to find out the composer and song title of their home music. Yeah. They must think I'm crazy. And here's where your okay. scoop is. I heard back from Vertex and they said that they use a third party vendor for their conference calls and they put the question to them. And unfortunately, even that conference call vendor doesn't know the hold music because it plays on a loop and they don't know what's playing at the time. <laughs> so my question is, why would someone write hold music that people might like, but then no one can find out who the composer is? <laughs> this is so good. Yes. This is such a hilariously like loopy wormhole. Sounds like it's an investigative it is, story. It does sound like an investigative story. <laughs> so there's more to this okay. story. <laughs> there's part oh B to this God. story. Connor found a great hold music song and it, it isn't classical or jazz. And well, here's what Connor had to say. I've heard this a couple of times on industry calls. I haven't, I've never heard it on like a, you know, capital S serious, uh, quarterly earnings call from a major corporation. I'm not going to sing it. It starts off like an acoustic guitar song that just sounds like elevator music. And, but the song has lyrics that are all about being on hold in a conference call. That's kind of funny. It's probably not funny after you hear it like 40 times, but uh, yeah, it was pretty good. There's this wonderful backstory to it. It was written by a guy named Alex Cornell about 10 years ago. He recorded it in just one night as a voice memo on his phone. And at the time was the only song he had ever written. And he was one of the co-founders of Uber Conference. And the song is like this big joke about how boring it is to wait around for people to get on the call. Well, I've been sitting here all day. I've been sitting in this waiting room. This is nice. This is almost too nice for the earnings calls. And I've been waiting on my friends. Yes, I'm waiting on this conference call all alone. And I'm on hold. It's like, oh, you get Alex Cornell as a treat. <laughs> oh, my God. It's yeah. catchy. I'm on hold. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're really wild for this. This is funny. I think I'm going to host a, just an independent earnings call of my own personal checking account if people want to ask me about my spending habits. And on that call, I'll have nine inch nails. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at Fierce Biotech or at Fierce Pharma or on the web at Fierce Pharma and FiercePharma and FiercePharma.com. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.